0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. We have come well, let me start out by saying I apologize for being a few minutes late. It is definitely the case that it is not within man to erect his own steps. Um, I had a great map that I was able to look at. I had Apple Map, Google Map, had two choices. Had James, as a matter of fact, giving me handwritten instructions on how to get here. I knew that had to be right, uh, but I questioned myself. I came one direction, didn't feel right. I went the other direction, got down to the supposed Jefferson Avenue Church of Christ. I was going to turn near, and uh, it was the Jefferson Avenue Church of Prophecy. And that wasn't it, there was no road to turn on. And so by then, I was way back down the road, so I had to make some turns. But thankfully, he did give me one of your numbers so I could reach out and at least make you feel better that I hadn't just completely forgot or decided not to come. Um, It is an honor to be here with you today. I'm certainly proud that I've had this opportunity. I've known James Rogers for a long, long time. Matter of fact, he and I go back really, in a sense, before my birth Uh, But I do remember him when I was three to four years old. Uh, He was a very studious man back then, had uh, a very pointed nose and perfect hair, pretty much like he looks now except for it's a little bit grayer. And uh, he spent many a days under my parents' table eating with us. He was a great friend of the family. He had preached in the area at the Tidaliga Church, which is the next congregation over to my home congregation. Um, He had preached also up the road at the Gadsden Church, preached over to Heflin Church, and later ended up at the Bremen Church of Christ in Bremen, Georgia, and uh, we're close enough there until I was able to kind of hang with him even then. But we spent a lot of time together. He was a best friend of my great-uncle Don Merle, who passed away in 97. Uh, They had spent a lot of time throughout the years, uh, James and Don and Bill Irby and a number of other people, probably about 30 uh, preachers at that time traveled around to go to Uncle Franklin Camp's classes. You may have seen some of the material Franklin Camp has put out And uh, they would go around to his classes, and he had those at the Alabama School of Religion in Montgomery, also up at the East Gadsden Church, not too far from us, and then over at the Adamsville Church of Christ as well as, I think, the Asheville Road. And I say that to say they traveled a lot. These preachers were generally willing to drive three, four, five hours even to set through a day of those classes, and it has benefited him greatly. And so I have always admired James and Nancy and their family, Uh, But I've also admired his ability and his talent to preach, but not just to preach, but to preach in a way that is plainly spoken that can be easily understood. And so I love and appreciate him, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. When James called me back about three or four months ago, he told me that the topic of today would be that of obedience. Obedience. And I can remember obviously, just kind of jotting that down on a note. I was at my desk when he called. I jotted that down. And I remember hanging out the phone and thinking to myself, wow, he said obedience, and I think he meant all three times. And I confirmed that with him in a text. Yes, that's what he meant. And so I thought to myself, that, that could be difficult because I've been in these pews like you have, and I've heard preachers or teachers talk about obedience And sometimes what I like, what I hear or tend to hear from the word obedience is I hear disobedience. And if someone were to speak on that for three hours, basically throughout the day, I may even think to myself, well, why in the world did that preacher come to speak on disobedience all day? I'm not that bad. (laughs) I mean, I don't have that many problems doing what God says. Why is that necessary? Well, basically the reason I'm going to do it today is for two reasons. Mainly and first... It comes up because James asked me to, and I assume the elders maybe backed him on that or maybe even suggested that. So if at any point during the day in these three lessons you get a little uncomfortable and you get the feeling like maybe uh, you're getting pounded on or your toes are getting stepped on, blame James. He'll be back in town at some point. Just take that up with him. But more importantly, and really what is the truth, is obedience is such an important topic when it comes to understanding God doing his will, and basically following his word. It is so directly tied to so many parts of following God. Indirectly, in one case, it is certainly connected to that of faith. You read Hebrews chapter 11 or really any other account, that backs that up in the Old Testament, and we will look at a few of those eventually. But if you read through there, every one of those characters, it may say by faith, but then the next phrase it'll say they did such. And so what that shows me is that their faith, in one sense, led them in the direction of obedience. But when I think about obedience, and specifically when I was thinking about it as to prepare what would ultimately be about three sessions, if you will, I won't say hours, that'd scare you, but about three sessions of talking about obedience, it came to my mind immediately why our attitudes may not be what they need to be at least for me, I can speak from my perspective and I can say that there have been times in my life when I've not wanted to be obedient to God simply because I saw it only as a requirement to be met. Now I say that carefully because I saw it only as a requirement to be met. When I think a better attitude to have in that is not that it is only a requirement to be met but perhaps more importantly, that it is a response to be maintained. Now, that's a little bit of a twist on words. I see a little bit of a different perspective, but it is not just or only a requirement to be met, as much as in our attitudes, in our minds, in our hearts, it ought to be a response to be maintained. Now keep that in your mind. If you take down notes, I would even jot that down because I'll mention that throughout the lessons today here and the next hour and the last this evening. But that is so important into getting our minds, getting our hearts set right in the right position so that we can be ready to be obedient to God. To understand that His requirements, His commandments are not grievous. The things that He instructs us to do are for our own good and not for our harm. And that keeps us in the right mindset and of the right attitude. Now, with that being said, I want you to begin this morning with me. Turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis. This will be easy. You'll recognize it when you get there. But turn your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis. When you get there, go to Genesis chapter 1. That'll be probably the first page on the right, uh, right across from that blank page on the left. In Genesis chapter 1, in my mind, and we're going to be talking about this from a few different perspectives. Lord willing, we get through at least part of this. But I want to first talk about the call to obedience. Why is it that you and I would be urged or directed in a call to be obedient to God? Well, I think we can first see that because of some of the accounts that are involved. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, I'll quote and or read it to you. Here it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God was upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I want to to show you, and just to consider this, this is in my estimation, I could be wrong, that's my disclaimer, but this is in my estimation the absolute very first account of obedience in all the Bible. It doesn't involve a character like Abel. It doesn't involve anyone like Noah or Abraham or any of the others you might mention. It doesn't involve David. And in this case, in one sense, it doesn't even involve Jesus himself. The very first account or action of obedience in the Bible is when the universe itself heeded the command of God. That impresses me. And when I consider it in that way, in my mind, and you may think I ought to go this direction with it, but if I were to just kind of close my Bible, put it away, and walk back and have a fellowship with you, spend some time with you, get to know you, and not even stand up again, that within itself, in my mind, would almost be enough for me to say, okay, if the entirety of the universe could be breathed into existence by the breath of God, And if something as simple or as complex, depending on whose perspective you see it, like light can be created by the mouth of God in full absolute obedience, surely can I. Now that would be enough. And that tells me that if the universe itself was obedient to God, surely I must. That's just one of the accounts. Now, I want to go to the secondary account to be a familiar verse to you. Go with me to the book of Hebrews. So you're going to go way back toward the back of your Bibles now. Go with me to the book of Hebrews. And when you get there, go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And I want to notice with you another instance. I don't know that it's lesser or greater, probably equal to. But another instance in which something or someone who is extremely important, has much authority within themselves, also decides to be obedient to God or makes that continued choice. Look at it, Hebrews chapter 8. I I said 8, I should have said 5. I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 is where we want to begin. It says this. Now, this is speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 5 and verse 8. And though he were a son, yet learned he obedience, that's the key word, underline that or highlight, Though learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now watch this in the next verse. And being made perfect, that is complete, finished, matured. And being made perfect, he, that's Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So there's another account. We have the universe on the one hand heeding and and holding to the word of God just based upon something he spoke and doing exactly what he required. Then we have the account way over here in the New Testament, midway through the book of Hebrews, of Jesus himself, the Son of God, the breath of God, the life of God, the the word of God, in turn as well being obedient to his Father's will. Now think about that one. If Jesus himself were willing to obey God, being according to John's account and the fact that he was God as well. He was with God and he was God. He just simply became flesh, verse 14 of John 1. But yet here it's recorded that he was obedient and became so, quote, by the things which he suffered. And therefore he became, verse 9, the author. I like to just simplize that is what it is. He wrote the book on how to obey Unto all them of us that obey Him as well. So, if I want a prime example of obedience, it doesn't matter what page I turn to, which part of the Bible I'm in, even though I see Bible characters and I might look to each of them and say, okay, here's an example of obedience, this is what He did, she did, they did, whomever. In the backside of that, I can also look through those people and ask myself, what did they do that was so much like what Jesus did that caused them? to be obedient. And that's simply just a part of the call of obedience. Now I want to put a parallel scripture with this so that we can have more understanding of Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. And that is, go back with the book of Matthew. When you get there, go to Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, I believe, and there are plenty of other ways and and proof, proof text or whatever you want to call that to get to the same conclusion... But in Matthew chapter 26, we have the account here of Jesus as he finds himself in the garden of Gethsemane. And you remember, the, remember what's going on there? Of course, Jesus has gone away in the garden. He's already been in the upper room with those disciples. He's already promised them the Holy Ghost. He's shown them the service that the Holy Ghost would do for them as the comforter. He's shown him the service that he was willing to do as he humbled himself in a sense at their feet to show them how to be servants and taught them about how the last should be first and the first should be last, that sort of thing. And then finally Jesus makes his way out into the Garden of Gethsemane Probably comes down off the side of that hill, crosses the book of Key John, which in that day and time, and at that point at least, as the Passover was approaching, was probably uh, filled with, with red, bloody water from all the things that were draining off of the mountain where they were making those sacrifices. He crossed the book of Key John, made his way out of the Garden of Gethsemane, and as he's there, a few of his disciples, you remember in the account, they're nearby at least, they're with him, and he begins to speak. Not to them specifically what we're focusing on, but also begins to speak to God. So in Matthew chapter 26, let's look beginning, and you'll be familiar with this, in verse 36. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. And then cometh at Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane. And he said unto his disciples, sit here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and even heavy. And he said to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry here with me. And he went a little father and fell on his face and prayed. Now listen to these words. You're familiar with them. O oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now Matthew's account goes on to tell us, and he prayed the same thing. Three times. What was Jesus doing? He was in the midst of some of the most terrible, just short of the cross at least, most terrible suffering that he would ever endure. According to Matthew's account, his sweat were, as it were, as droplets of blood. Now, we don't know exactly what that was, but you've heard it said by many who claim they've talked to a doctor. I've not talked to a doctor I've heard people who claim they've taught the doctors, but come up with this idea of this being hematidrosis and it was literal drops of blood. I assume it was. The Bible called it such. But we have been in an extremely, extremely stressful, trying, suffering moment. And what did he do? Hebrews writer says, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so I only established that to show you these two accounts under what I would call the call to obedience. And the call to obedience for us laying down that first principle is that we all look to those examples of obedience that came before us and therefore do our best to implement that in our lives. And there are no greater than the universe itself and the Lord of it. Number next. Take your Bibles now and go back with me just a bit. Let's go back over just a little bit farther and think about some more things that are involved. Uh, Look with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis again, so you'll be right back toward the beginning. But instead of being in chapter 1 this time, go to Genesis chapter 6. And I realize probably by that that name or giving you that list, Genesis chapter 6, or maybe when you get there you'll see the heading above it. You know who we're about to speak on, and that is the idea of Noah. But as you turn that, let me add to you two principles. We mentioned a moment ago that we ought to see obedience not just as a requirement, but instead, perhaps, see it as a response that we maintain. Not a requirement to be met, but a response that we maintain. Now, as we lead into that, I want to show you that obedience has the possibility, I might even call it the probability, of allowing two things to be evident in our life. Number one, obedience, and we're going to see this in the, all the characters that we are managing to get to today. Hopefully we'll get through at least one or two. But obedience in these characters basically does two things. Number one, obedience presents our faith. And I mean that because when you see these characters, such as what Noah's going to do in the building of the ark, and it's going to say down toward the end of that account, specifically that Noah did all that God had commanded him. So did he. What I see in that is Noah, just based on him doing what God said, presented the fact that he had faith. It presented it to those around him. Now, I don't know what the attitudes were. I'm assuming based on what we end up with, knowing the rest of the story and the account of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, I'm assuming that most all of those people around him, save his uh, family that he managed to get to go along with this, most everybody around him looked at Noah and didn't understand his faith at all. Maybe they looked at him and questioned him, and he said, well, you know what? I'm just trying to, I'm not sure he would have used the word, but it would have fit. I just want to obey My God. And maybe some of them ask, why? Well, I just want to obey my God. I want to prove in that sense or to, in this sense, to show you, present to you my faith. Now, did it have that capability? Yes, it did. It seems evident it did not affect any in that way. At least had not affected many in that way, none outside of his household. But nonetheless, he had a faith that caused him to be able to present that faith based on his obedience. The practice of such did that. Secondary to that, and this will apply to all the characters as well, just kind of to build that up. Obedience not only presents our faith, it will later prove our faith. You know, when you watch Noah go through what he did and to build that ark, ultimately to land himself on that boat, finally after all that length of time goes by, he finally comes down out of that boat. I would suppose that anyone living there, which would have just been family unfortunately, but I suppose all of them looked at their father or whomever the relationship was, the husband, whatever, they probably looked to Noah right then and said, you proved to me that you did have faith. You followed through with what God had commanded you in spite of the fact of how difficult it was, in spite of the fact of how much time it took, in spite of the fact of the potential ridicule that you endured. You followed through on that. And again, you can use that and look through any of the Bible characters that would have been proven faithful, all of them. And you'll see within that they were able to do those things. Obedience presented their faith. And it also proved their faith. It let God know they would do right. Now, as we get into this, I would title this, and that was introduction if you're getting scared by now. But as we get into this, I would simply just title this as the Principles of Foundational Faith the type of faith that has to be built, that has to be laid under, that has to be put up up, up under and beneath everything else that we do in life for God, and obedience makes such possible, so we've got this call, now we've got these characters, Noah's the first, and you'll remember most of it, we'll read very little of it, but in Genesis chapter 6, the chapter kind of kicks itself off, and and talks about how the men of the earth were multiplying, and God saw, verse 5 of chapter 6, Genesis, that there was wickedness upon the earth, and that every imagination and thoughts of the hearts of men were evil continually. Even adds to that, verse 6, that it repented the Lord, that he hath made man upon the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So he makes a decision. He's going to destroy that. And then in verse 8, we learn this small fact. But Noah... Found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What will that do for Noah? You know, to understand grace, and you've probably heard it defined, maybe you've, you've taught it yourself or defined it for yourself in this way, we often use just a little, it's almost catchy because we're so used to hearing it, we use a little phrase that grace is God's unmerited or undeserved favor. And I think the real key word in that is, is twofold. It's in both words, really, but one, it's undeserved, and one, it is Favor. <coughs> It's favor that we do not necessarily deserve and could not necessarily deserve all on our own. And so what we're learning here about Noah, and I don't know exactly God's selection process, but God does pitch in here, by the way, the Holy Spirit, to have it recorded in the text in verse 8, that Noah received grace from God. He didn't receive accounted to be righteous by God. He didn't receive justification by God at this point. He simply received grace. And in one sense, because of Jesus, he received the same grace that we can and do. Now, to understand grace a little more fully, we have to understand that grace has to be embraced. Okay? Let's imagine for just a moment that when I got, got I say got on. Y'all say got on or got done or got finished. James will say I, when I completed the operation or something. But... When I got done from here, if I chose to just pick someone out of the audience and say, I'm coming home, I'm, I'll do it. You, you smile a lot. I'm coming home with you. And so forget the hotel. Forget the rest of the I'm going to come home with you. And I get home, and, and you come in. You say, well, Jim, I'm glad that you chose to come over to my house. I, I'm sure we're going to enjoy our time together. And I said, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I kind of handed it to my wife or indicated I might be back first thing in the morning. But now that I look at it, uh, well, you know, with your smile and all, and, and, and the place you've got for me to stay, I think I'll stay the week. Well, you're taken back by that, but you're a good Christian, so you keep smiling. <laughs> Two to three hours later, at about the fifth or sixth time, you said, Jim, do you want anything to drink? Do you want anything to eat? Do you, can I offer you a piece of cake or whatever else you got? And you go on and on back and forth. And I say, no, I'm fine. I'll just lay here on the couch. I wake up in the morning, you get up, you say, well, I noticed you didn't eat, you didn't drink at all yesterday. Would you, would you like something? I, I, I just want to be a good host. I said, no, I'm fine, I'm just going to hang out here, I'll be right here on the couch. About Tuesday, because I have a little bit of a sugar issue, it probably would have happened prior to that, I am lethargic. I mean, I'm getting sick, I'm, I'm laid out, and, and you're still offering me the same things. I'm still denying the same things. And and I get I get weak. I get very weak. And you start calling around and saying, hey, I don't know what's what the what's the deal is with this gym fella. He he don't want to leave for one and he won't take anything I've got and he's not looking good. Someone suggests, well, you may want to just call the ambulance of the police to get him out of there. I don't want to go. If at the end of that third, fourth, fifth day, whatever that is, probably would have been the first, he'd got sick of that, but If I said, you know what? She was just not a gracious host. Is that true? No, ma'am, no, sir. When grace is extended, when unmerited favor toward a person is extended, and it is not received, it cannot be used. So the fact that this scripture says to us plainly, verse 8, Genesis chapter 6, and Noah found grace, In the eyes of the Lord tells me that Noah must have, in the context, accepted his grace. Now that's the difference between us and the rest of the world. And you're saying, Jim, that you're saved by grace only? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the grace of God offers us unmerited favor, the definition of such, and that we in turn being obedient to it as we accept it allows us to take advantage of it. That's what Noah does. Now we find that in the rest of the context. You move on just a little bit. Really, if I were to divide this up, I would say the obedience from God was his invitation to grace. His first invitation to grace was right there in verse 8. It lists the generations of Noah. You drop over to verse 14 of chapter 6. and God's commanding here, he says, Go and make thee an ark of gopher wood, and the room shall thou make of it in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. The breadth of the ark shall be 50 cubits. The height of the ark shall be 30 cubits. A window thou shalt make in the ark, and a cubit above to finish it. and above the door of the ark, thou shalt set the side thereof with the lower section, and the third stories, and make it. And behold, I even do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy flesh, wherein is the breath of life and under heaven and everything on the earth. Now look at that little section right here. God's invitation, if you want to see it that way, came in in verse 8. But when we get down to here in this section, we have God's explanation in that He wants Him to know exactly what to do. You see, that's the beauty of obeying God. Obeying human beings, many times, we are obeying things that part of which may be a shot in the dark. You know, I was a little late getting here. Apologize again. But I was given several different pieces of instruction, whether it be by James himself or, or others or things that I had looked up and researched. And I tried to follow all of those pieces of instruction, be obedient to them, and that didn't work. Because some of them were wrong. This song. I was wrong. I turned the wrong way. I went the wrong direction. When being obedient to men, oftentimes some of the things that we are commanded, if you want to say that, instructed to do are not always right. But you know as well as I do as a Bible student, God is always right. So his instructions right here are very specific. They are detailed. They leave no, what we might call, in hindsight, gray areas. He simply builds the ark as God said. And so he has an invitation to obedience in verse 8. He in turn has an explanation, if you want to see it, for obedience in verses 14 through 17. But drop down to verse, let's see, verse 22. Verse 22, he in turn has what I would call the complete demonstration of obedience. Here's what it says. And thus did Noah, according to, what's that next word? Say it loud as you can. All that God commanded him, so did he. And thus did Noah, all that God commanded him, so did he. That, my friends, is what made Noah in this part of his life. Would he make mistakes? Sure. Get him out of the ark and see what he does. But in his portion, this section, this part of his life, that's what made him obedient. He took the invitation of grace by God to be obedient. He took the explanation of God given toward obedience. And then he in turn takes the last one here, the demonstration of it, because he does it. That's one character. Now, for a little bit of reference, most of these characters are going to be found later. You're in Genesis chapter 6. Go back to the book of Hebrews again this time, so back, way back toward the end if you want to see it that way. But go back to the book of Hebrews this time. But instead of going to chapter 5 to speak about Jesus, go into chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we oftentimes would call it, if you will, Faith's Hall of Fame. I think that's a a decent, at least a decent description of what this is. I think we could easily, in turn, call it as well the Obedient Hall of Fame. Because again, all these people, I've already mentioned this just in passing, every one of these people or groups of people you get to eventually, they did what God said because of their faith. And then in turn, by doing what God said because of their faith, their faith gets proven. Look at the characters that are here. I won't read about many of these, but you can see them. To begin with, verse 2, he speaks about the elders having obtained a good report. Verse 4, he speaks about Abel having offered to God an excellent sacrifice. He speaks about Enoch, verse 5, being translated. He speaks about, and this is the one we have to get to, he speaks about Noah, watch this, verse 7, and Noah being warned of God of the things that's not seen yet, Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, watch this, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness which is by faith. Again, I think it does no harm to the context if we were to be clear in this. It might help half the world and probably help the ones in the mirror to always be mindful that when faith is used like this, it could be reworded just simply to say at the tail of that verse, for he became the heir of righteousness by his obedient faith. No, obey God. And according to what we read in Genesis 6 and verse 22, he obeyed God explicitly and fully, making him a great character or an illustration of what obedience ought to be. Now, let's go back and look at another. You'll, I'm, I'm listening for those bells. I had to stop and get these glasses at Walmart on the way up because I forgot mine. So these see pretty well right here, but I can't see a thing out there like my real glasses. So I can't see, can't see that clock. That'll be my excuse. So you can buzz me if you'd like. Go back with me to book with Genesis again. But this time, instead of going to Genesis chapter 6, Go first off, go with me back to Genesis chapter 12. Again, we're going to use another prominent, obvious character of God's uh, to show this idea of faith. As a matter of fact, this one here, we're going to be talking about Abraham as one of those characters, one of those uh, obedient characters of faith. Abraham is probably the most prominent. Now, Noah, obviously, in what he did in that part of his life was explicitly obedient. But Abraham seems to have a lifestyle, His whole, we would use this word, King James speak, his whole conversation, his lifestyle, manner of life was that of obedience. And the first account that we have of this begins really here in Genesis chapter 12. And the beauty of it is is that Abraham's going to take take a part in a lot of the scripture throughout the book of Genesis. You don't just read about him in one chapter or this or that. You read about him over chapters upon chapters and chapters and most times that you read of him, what you're reading about is how faithful he was. Now in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, watch what, watch what happens with uh, Abraham in the first account of his. It says, And now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kingdom, and from thy father's house, unto a land I will show thee, and I will make thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and I will make them great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Now, this is a side note, but did you hear what just happened there? This is a key I have to remember in my life. If God's blessing you or me, he's blessing us so we can be a blessing to someone else. That's exactly what I just said. We are blessed by Abraham today because he was blessed. We ought to reciprocate the same. Verse 3, And I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curseth thee, And all families of the earth shall be blessed. And Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him. And Abraham was seventy and five years old and departed out of Haran. What did it say? Verse 1 and 2, God says, get up, get your family, get out. Go into a place and I'll show you when you get there. You know, my weekend was a little bit different than that so far, at least. I had a really, really, really good inkling of an idea that I was eventually going to be standing somewhere in the building at the Smyrna Church of Christ. That was my plan. Now, if James Rogers had just called me and said, and I, I love James, he's a great friend, but if he just called me and said, Jim, why don't you come up? All right, well, I'll come on up. What are we going to do when we get there? I have no idea, but I'll figure something out. Uh, I don't care about James, but I love the family I left behind. And every one of them are sad because I'm here. (laughs) And I had three other opportunities to preach, three different congregations at home to preach that were all within about 40 minutes of the place. And one of them was at home. I could have went to other places. Abraham obeys God in spite of the fact God had not given him as he did Noah full instructions. You say, well, there's a contradiction in what you tried to claim while ago. No, the idea is their faith bridges that gap. The idea is there that when he had explicit, complete instruction, that being Noah, he obeyed that. When Abraham very, had very little to no information based on the fact that he loved God at that point somehow, and I don't know how, he came out of Ur of the Chaldees, which would have been an idolatrous nation. So I don't, I don't have the answer for that. Maybe James can get back and answer that or someone else you can speak with. I don't know. But what I can know is this. He still did it. He still obeyed God. In spite of what he knew. You know, does that carry itself into any parts of our lives? I would say it carries itself into every part of our life. We don't know exactly what the next moment will hold, what tomorrow may hold, what any time in the future may hold. We may look back at the past and not understand why that occurred or what happened there or, or what this situation was all about. But through the faith that we have in God, we prepare ourselves every day, hopefully, to step out of our beds and to be obedient. That's exactly what Abraham did. Now let's look at another account in Abraham's life as well, just as familiar. Go over to Genesis chapter 22. You'll know exactly what this is when you get there. But in Genesis chapter 22, it's a long part of the reading to really get down to this. But basically, God calls out to Abraham and, and asks of him to offer his son Isaac on an altar. Literally, physically, take his son up on a mountain slay him there, place him up on that altar, and then in turn burn him as a sacrifice. That's what God intended for Abraham to do. And in the account, when that instruction is given, we learn a lot of detail. We learn about how as they're traveling, they apparently took some others along with them, maybe some servants to help them with some of the things they had to pack away to the Mount of Moriah. And as they approach the mountaintop, Abraham basically turns and tells those Uh, servants, he said, you know, you go and go ahead and stay here while this lad and I will go yonder and worship and he makes an indication that they're coming back. Now I fully believe, and I'm not ready to argue this, but I fully trust and believe that his faith at that point was just that strong. That he didn't know how this was going to work, but he knew it would. On the other hand, I, I could see, at least, I could see a father in front of a son, he's about to slay and place on an altar just kind of giving that positive mindset out there because when Isaac begins to question and says you know father we've got the fire we've got the wood we've got all this stuff but where in the world is the sacrifice what was his reply to that my son God will provide And so his faith is evident here already, but not yet been proven. Remember, I said a few moments ago, in each of these characters, you could say on the one hand that obedience presents our faith, but on the other, obedience proves our faith. It's going to do both. As they're walking up that mountain, as he's building that altar, as he's binding up his son Isaac, that presents to God his faith exists. When in God's eyes, he in turn... Commits that sacrifice. Now, we have to go in hindsight, we have to see the Hebrew account to understand that. But he does, in one sense, before God, slay that son on that altar and offer him up. That proved his faith. But look at where we find that actually occurring. I've I've kind of talked you through uh, the first, uh, basically 15 verses of chapter 22 of Genesis. Verse 16 says this explicitly. And said, by myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son. Now, we just got through what we didn't read. But if you were to back up in the text, verses 9 through 15, basically Abraham gets ready to slay him. He's put him on the altar, bound him up. I don't know how at his age. I don't know how he had the strength to do it, but he did it. He binds him up, places him on the altar, draws the knife back. God stopped him ultimately provided for him a lamb caught in a thicket. And he says this about him, verse 16 again. And he said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and thou hast not withheld thy only Son, in blessing I will bless thee, in multiplying I will multiply thee, and the seeds of the stars in heaven and the sand of the sea shall be on the seashore, and the seed shall possess the gate of thine enemies." So what did he do? He did exactly all that God had asked. That's obedience that comes in line with the commandments of God. Now, I think we probably have one minute left. Let's go back to the Hebrew account just so that we do see the the rest of this story, kind of the end of that and how it bears out. And this is found in Hebrews chapter um, 11 also. But this part of it is found in chapter 11 verses uh, 11 through 19. So Hebrews 11, 11 through 19 is this part of it. The previous part where he was told to get up and go out knowing the place he know not whether he went is actually found back over in verse 8 of chapter 11. So we'll read them in order. Chapter 11 verse 8 Hebrews. And Abraham, when he was called out to go into the place that he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out not knowing whether he went. So in the going out of that, in the journey, that part of that, he obeyed. Across the page in verse 17, Hebrews 11, it says this, And by faith Abraham, when he was tried to offer up Isaac that he had received in a promise, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, "In Isaac, all the seed shall be blessed. And accounting, verse 19, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence he received him in a figure So what did Abraham think? Best case scenario, Abraham thought, if I kill him, God will raise him. That's faith. But the fact that he had come up with in his mind any option which may have included that of resurrection does not take away his obedience to God. God said he did. And we could look at a several other things. That's about one third of the way through what I had planned to discuss in this hour, but I do appreciate your attention and I appreciate all the open Bibles that I can see in here. Uh, that really makes God feel good. Not just me, but God. Thank you.